Let's dig into Revelation chapter 5 today. Uh, To catch you up, in case you have been away for a week or two, here is the 60-second summary of Revelation chapters 1 through 4. Somebody time me. Chapter 1. John, the disciple, the apostle, he's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, appears to John in a vision and says, I'm going to show you some things that are going on right now, and I'm going to show you some things that are going to happen, and I want you to write down everything that you see and send it to seven churches. Chapters 2 and 3 are individual letters that Jesus wrote to each of those seven churches. All seven churches got all seven letters, which as we've learned over the last four weeks looking at these different letters, if there is something that is correctable in one church, it is also correctable in other churches, and that goes for us today in the 21st century. So we worked through the letters where Jesus encourages the churches, and he also uh, provides some correction where necessary. And finally, chapter four, which we covered last week, is a scene of heavenly worship, and that's where the switch flips from current events that were going on in first century to uh, John getting a glimpse of future events. It's the scene of worship in heaven. This is not a 60-second summary anymore, sorry. Uh, It's a scene of worship in heaven where God is sitting on the throne. There are four living beings, which as best as we can tell, uh, represent all of living creation, and 24 elders, which again, as best as we can tell, are 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, and they're all in heaven bowing down and worshiping God the Father who sits on the throne. And in the middle of that scene of worship, John notices a couple things. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 5. We'll read verses 1 through 10 this morning. This is on the front page of your notes. You can follow along if you like. Revelation 5. This is John speaking. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll... And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered, but it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll... The four living beings and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. So in the midst of this scene of heavenly worship, John starts to notice some things. First, he notices a scroll in God's right hand. It's been sealed up with seven seals, and there's writing on the front and the back. 
being held in God's right hand. A couple things John would have picked up on right away uh, since he was very well versed in scrolls because that's, that's like books to us. Everybody knows what scrolls are. You write on them. Uh, but back then, scrolls that were sealed up with seven seals, they were, they were no less well known, but they were very uncommon. You didn't usually seal a scroll up unless it was something legal, something that you didn't want the wrong person to tamper with or something that had some contents that weren't supposed to be opened until a specific time. Um, Take the will of Emperors Vespasian and Caesar Augustus. They were sealed up with seven seals. And the the, the way the process of sealing a scroll worked is actually really cool. Uh, you can check that out online in your spare time this week. What I want to mention is the unsealing process. Because what's about to happen in the next couple weeks and the next couple chapters of Revelation is this scroll begins to gradually be unsealed. And as it's unsealed, stuff starts to happen. But it's important to understand why and how the scroll can be unsealed at this point in history. There was two, two basic steps to opening a sealed scroll. You couldn't just plop it down and open it up and read it. Uh, There were two steps. First, certain conditions had to be met. I know that's very specific. Uh, These are are conditions that were generally laid out by the author of uh, of the scroll. So in the case of an emperor's will, guess what the condition was to open the scroll? Right, emperor's death. Once he dies, you can then open the scroll. So there were these specified conditions that our children are singing about right now. Uh, (laughs) that would allow one to open the scroll. The step two, second step, was that you had to have somebody worthy enough to open the scroll. It wasn't just good enough for you to hand, uh, you know, whoever, Bob, the scroll, and have Bob read it, because Bob's just Bob. He doesn't have a position of power or authority or anything. He's just Bob, the guy that I made up for this illustration. And uh, what you would need to do is you would need somebody worthy to open the scroll. Somebody of uh, sufficient, well, or not wealth, uh, status, authority, power, whether it's governmental or military or political or whatever. Oftentimes that person was also specified by the author of the scroll. You know, it may only be opened by Bill, not Bob. Sorry, Bob. Um, So what you're looking for is you're looking for certain conditions to be met, and then you need the person who is worthy enough to open the scroll. Something else that's interesting about this scroll is that there is writing on both sides. Most scrolls you would just write on the front, and you wouldn't bother writing on the back. If you ran out of scroll to write on, you would just get another scroll. So your your writing would end up becoming like a multi-volume, a multi-scroll piece of of work. What's interesting about this one is there's writing on the back and the front. This tells us a couple things. First, it tells John something too, that this is uh, very extensive. In other words, the the symbolism is that God ran out of space on the front, had to keep writing on the back. So whatever is written in this scroll is incredibly extensive and detailed, but also complete. There is no second scroll. God wrote everything he needed to, and it covered the front and back of this scroll. There is no second scroll. So not only is it extensive and detailed, but whatever is in this scroll is also complete. Finally, it's in God's right hand, the hand of power, the hand of authority, the hand of judgment. It's safe to assume, based on all of this, that John has a pretty good idea of what's in this scroll. 
He might not know the specifics. He's about to find out uh, as the vision continues, but he doesn't know specifically what's in it. But the general idea is that, based on all of that, this is the legal, extensive, detailed, and complete judgment that God has prepared for the world. This is the ultimate destiny of the world, including the judgment of everyone who ever lived. General idea John has in his mind when he sees this scroll. Next thing that happens, a big angel shows up, a strong angel. He calls out across the world, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll? This is step two, right? He's looking for someone to open the scroll, which also means that step one must have been completed doesn't give us details on what that step one was, what the conditions were that allowed that scroll to be open. I've got some ideas. We'll get to that in a little bit. But step two, they're looking for somebody worthy enough to open the scroll. The call goes out across the earth and in the heavens and under the earth. All levels of creation hear this call, and no one shows up. No one is found worthy, at least immediately, no one is found worthy to open the scroll and John unravels and begins weeping. Why? This is something John was was waiting for. If he understands the, the basic gist of what's in this scroll, why is there weeping? Well, remember what we've talked about the last couple weeks with what's going on in the first century church. Um... There's persecution, right? The, uh, the Roman emperor has set up Christians as the scapegoat for all the problems in the empire. Roman citizens have bought his nonsense and are persecuting Christians. They're getting arrested unfairly. They're being tried, and they can't get out of the false accusations in court unless they, uh, unless they renounce their faith in Christ. And then even if some of them do, most of the time they're murdered anyway. So Christians are being put to death. Also you have this, this religious and this racial tension between the Jews and the Christians. They're all, they're butting heads. And it's not just the normal, everyday church people who are being persecuted. By this point in history, when John is receiving this vision towards the very end of the first century, most of the other apostles, most of the disciples of Christ have already been executed. James has been beheaded. Paul has been beheaded. Andrew's been crucified. Peter's been crucified upside down. All, all leadership, all the way down to, you know, your grassroots Christian, every single person is being persecuted. There is no one exempt from this. Even John himself was boiled alive in oil before being unceremoniously dumped off on the rock on which he's currently receiving this vision from Jesus. He bears the scars physically, and mentally and emotionally, the scars of his persecution. His friends, the people that he traveled with, when he traveled with Christ, most of them have been put to death and martyred for the sake of Christ. And what John sees in this scroll is is justice. Justice for the Christians who are being persecuted. Justice for the Christians in the future who, are being per- who will be persecuted. Justice for the Christians who are put to death at the hands of wicked men. Evil is flourishing across the empire, but when God unseals this scroll and reveals his ultimate judgment, the wrongs will be made right. 
everyone will be judged. Jesus talks about this in the book of John, which we'll actually get to in a little bit today. That there's going to come a day when everyone is judged and those who follow Jesus will rise, they'll be judged, and they'll be rewarded, not only for their faith in Christ, but also for refusing to back down from persecution. So all of those Christians who have been martyred, all the Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ, they will be rewarded. And the evil and wicked people will also rise and experience judgment, and they will be judged accordingly and punished. John is seeing justice in this scroll and judgment, and finally, persecution will end, and those who persecute Christians will be punished accordingly, and justice will be done. But as long as this scroll remains sealed, justice is postponed. John can't even fathom a situation where the God of the universe's ultimate judgment would be thwarted. But here it is right in front of him. It's sealed up in this scroll and nobody can open it. All of his friends and loved ones who have died will go unavenged. Evil will continue. Evil people will continue to persecute Christians if this, if this scroll remains sealed. And he begins weeping. But then, one of the elders says, why are you weeping? Look, we found somebody. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, he is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy. And I can imagine John, you know, standing up from where he was weeping on the floor. He whips his head around and he sees a lamb. But not just a lamb. A lamb that looks as though it's been slaughtered. It's bloody. But it's not dead. It's not bleeding out on the throne room floor. This lamb is standing triumphantly in the middle of God and the four living beings and the 24 elders. The lamb that looks as though it's been slaughtered is standing and then it walks up to God, walks up to God and takes the scroll from his right hand. That is a big deal. takes the scroll from God's right hand and all of the beings in heaven fall down and worship the Lamb. If you're familiar with Christian imagery, you know who the Lamb is. It's Jesus. What's interesting to me in Revelation chapter 5 is why he appears as a Lamb. Why not something else? I mean, he has tons of titles, right? He could have appeared as a lion, right? He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. He could have appeared as a king. He's the king of kings, lord of lords, heir of King David's throne. Even uh, earlier in Revelation in chapter 1, you remember what he appeared as? He appeared as one who looked like the son of man. His hair and his beard were whiter than snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze. And when he spoke, it was like all the oceans of the world crashed their waves together at once. Why doesn't that image of Jesus appear in the throne room? Why doesn't that image of Jesus take the scroll? Why the lamb? That's what I want to dig into today. I find it very interesting that God chose this symbolic version of Jesus to show John 
as he receives the scroll. Because what's about to happen? The scroll gets unsealed, like I said earlier. Stuff's going to happen on earth, and it's not like the fun, yay God kind of stuff. As these seals are uh, unsealed off this scroll, and we'll talk about this uh, in a couple weeks, you have famine, disease, destruction, and death that, are, uh, that take place on the earth. It's, it's not usually the stuff that you think about when you're going to tell your friend about Jesus and share your faith. It's not the first thing that comes to your mind. Usually it's the stuff that bothered you when you read Revelation, and so you try not to think too much about it, Just kind of why we're doing this sermon series. But why is it important that before all of that stuff happens, before ultimate judgment happens, that the Lamb of God is shown as the one taking the scroll? Let's talk about that. Here's today's big idea. The Lamb of God is the only one worthy to open the scroll and deliver God's ultimate judgment. However, in a stunning plot twist, our judge is also our advocate and the atonement for our injustice. Our judge is our advocate and the atonement for our injustice. It's too perfect to be a mere coincidence. Right before Jesus begins enacting God's ultimate judgment on the earth, he appears as a lamb. Let's look into that. Question. Uh, the first recorded reference of Jesus being called the Lamb of God, you know where it is? Yep, correct. John the Baptist. John chapter 1. In fact, most of uh, the rest of Scripture we're going to read today actually comes from John. John understood in a very unique way, uh, understood Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so I want to help us to see the lamb as John saw the lamb so that we can see what John saw when he saw the lamb take the scroll. But that first reference is in John chapter 1. John the Baptist is walking around and he sees Jesus coming and he says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John begins, John the disciple, not John the Baptist, two different guys. John the disciple begins following Jesus. He begins witnessing these incredible things that Jesus is doing. He sees the Lamb of God work miracles and do these incredible things. And in John chapter 5, there's an encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, which apparently was a problem. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, um, and many of the Jewish leaders back then were very, very legalistic. Um, So they were not cool with anybody doing any work on the Sabbath, and apparently doing a miracle counts as work. So they try, they go to Jesus, they're all riled up, they want an explanation for this. And Jesus begins this discourse about himself and his father. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. My father is always working, therefore I'm always working. And uh, in chapter 5 verse 22, he begins mentioning judgment. It's very interesting what he has to say. This is John chapter 5, uh, verses 22 through... That's in your notes. You can see it there. In addition, Jesus says, the Father judges no one. I will repeat that. 
the Father judges no one. This is taking the Jewish leader's view of God and just, just flipping it on its head. The Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And he has given the Son authority to judge everyone because, don't miss this, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus was given authority from the Father to judge because he was the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son and they will rise again. This part of John right here is what we get to towards the end of Revelation. When all the dead rise and experience judgment. So Jesus is giving us revelation way earlier while he's still here on earth. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. So here's the first point in your notes. God gave Jesus the authority to judge. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is our judge. Yes, he is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He's our forgiver, and he is also our judge. Here's a question. Why didn't God just open the scroll himself? Why didn't the Father, seated on the throne, with the scroll in his right hand, why didn't he just pop the seals and open the scroll himself? I mean, he was worthy enough. He wrote the thing. He already knows what's inside it. He knows every little thing that's going to happen when that scroll is open. So why didn't he open the scroll himself? Have you ever, have you ever watched one of those daytime TV court shows with you know, Judge Judy or Mathis or Cletus or whoever? He's in Missouri. Sorry if you're watching this in Missouri. Didn't mean to make fun of you. Um, Anyway, so those, those daytime TV courtroom shows where one judge is sitting there and watching these two people bicker and argue, and usually you can tell the one who's at fault, like, really quick, and you just know they're just drawing out the drama because it makes good TV. But uh, usually what's happened, at least in a few of the episodes that I've had the, I'm not sure if I want to say the pleasure to watch over my life, uh, but uh, I've had the ability to watch Usually it ends with the judges getting ready to declare what they have found and declare judgment on the part, guilty party. And usually right before it, the person will say something like, the, the guilty party will say something like this, in their defense. You just don't get it. You don't understand. You weren't there. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know why I took the money. I needed that for blah, 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 blah. You don't know what was going in my head. You're not me. You don't have the experiences that I have. You just don't understand. I think that the reason that God gave Jesus the authority to judge, it's not because God wasn't worthy to do so. Of course he's worthy to do so. God wrote the laws. And he is not only a loving father, but he's also a just one. No ifs, ands, or buts, or apologies about it. 
because he's just, he will punish injustice. That's what we all want, right? We want the unjust to be brought to justice. That's what we desire. So certainly God the Father could have done that, and he would have been absolutely, had every single right to do so, and none of us would have had a complaint about it. However, he says, he gave authority to judge everyone to Jesus because he is the Son of Man. The judge that God selected was one of us. He gets it. Though he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. Hebrews 4.15 says, This high priest of ours, referring to Jesus, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings that we do. Jesus didn't get the easy treatment while he was here on earth just because he was the Son of God. In fact, he got the worst treatment. But God chose him to be the judge for our sins. One who understands us. One who has been in our shoes. One who gets it. He is the one that judges us. Interesting. Let's move to the second point, and we'll move a little bit later in the book of John. John saw John the Baptist call him the Lamb of God, and he experienced this this encounter in John chapter 5. And then in John chapter 8, there's another encounter. This time, a woman has committed adultery, and the Jewish leaders rile up a crowd and just unleash them at Jesus They bring this whole crowd and this woman, and as a side note, they actually broke a whole bunch of laws about bringing someone who committed adultery to justice in doing this. I don't have time to get into that today, but they actually break the law that they're really, really worried that Jesus isn't upholding. They bring this woman before Jesus, and they say, John chapter 8, verses 4 through 11, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Skipping a little bit. All right, said Jesus, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Then Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is the famous line, right? Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. Let the one who never sinned throw the first stone. Also implying that there is someone with the right to judge, right? The one who has never sinned. Jesus is not denying the fact that the law of Moses says to stone this woman. He readily admits it, right? They say, the law of Moses has to stone this woman, Jesus. What do you say? And he says, all right, but if you're going to put judgment on this woman, or if anyone's going to put judgment on this woman, let it be the one who has never sinned. And yeah, it makes a cool illustration about how we shouldn't judge other people, but also Jesus is implying that there is a person who is worthy to judge, and it is the one who has never sinned. The end of that verse in Hebrews I read earlier, 4.15. 
I'm going to read that whole thing again. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus was put through all the stuff that we've walked through, and worse, he experienced injustice, several, they weren't even trials, they were shams of a trial, to, to quote Pastor Phil from our, uh, our Easter series. The only path for him to die as he did would have been injustice, right? We talked about that back around Easter. But he never sinned. He went through all the stuff we did, yet he did not sin. If he had sinned when he died, he would have just been putting his own sin to death. And that would have been that. But he didn't sin. And he was the son of man who is also our judge. Interesting. So the second point in your notes is Jesus implies there is but one who has the right to judge and that is the one who has never sinned. Fast forward in John's life. By this point, John has gained a new appreciation for the title, the Lamb of God. John understands the, the Old Testament sacrificial uh, rites. He understands the Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb. He would slaughter a lamb, a perfect, a perfect lamb without blemish would be slaughtered to cover your sins, basically. And then, of course, there's the Passover lamb in Exodus. So John understands this concept of the sacrificial lamb. He walks with Jesus through the end of his life. He sees him persecuted. He sees him beaten. He sees him hang on a cross and die. And then three days later, when Jesus rises, John sees him and spends, uh, spends some time with him before Jesus ascends to the throne. He has a really good understanding of the Lamb of God at this point. And he writes a letter to a church, 1 John. This, in the last year, has become one of my favorite books of the Bible. Uh, back during our How to Study Your Bible series, um, we each picked a letter to study through that series. I picked 1 John. There were a couple other people in my group. I think Ed Marshek was one of them. We, we studied through the book of 1 John together. And John... Look, go read that book, please. <laughs> it's short. You can read it in like a half an hour or less. Do yourself a favor. Read 1 John. It's incredible. But here's a point in 1 John that ties into everything that we're talking about today. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Jesus is not just our judge. He's also our advocate and the atonement for our sins. Third point in your notes, to become our advocate, Jesus, the sinless one, became the atonement for our sins. Legally, this makes absolutely zero sense. You can't be the judge, an impartial, unbiased person who takes a look at the law and decides whether someone is guilty or not. I mean, we do it by jury here, but strictly speaking, judges way back then, that's what you do. You look at the law, you judge them guilty, or you judge them innocent. And you're impartial. You're not supposed to know or put judgment on somebody that you know right? Because it's going to color your outcome. 
It's going to color the justice. So the judge is supposed to be completely unbiased, but here the judge becomes our advocate. Who is the advocate? It was somebody who spoke on behalf of the good character of someone that was brought to court. So Jesus is the judge, but he's also our advocate. He's the one who argues our case to the judge that he also is. And then, because that wasn't enough, he became the atonement for our sins, the payment. He didn't just become the guy that paid for our sins, he became the payment for our sins. Judge, advocate, atonement in one man, Jesus Christ. Here's why I'm talking about all of this today. Here's why we went back to John and, and looked at what he understood about Jesus. Jesus didn't keep any of this stuff hidden while he was here on earth. He didn't just say, whoa, hold on, dude, I'm not here to judge. Don't worry about it. And then drop this bomb in Revelation. All of these things that happen in Revelation, Jesus talks about. Maybe not, you know, the exact specifics, but he mentions all this stuff. And John, the disciple, the apostle, the one who's receiving this revelation on the Isle of Patmos from Jesus Christ himself, it's the same guy. He watched Jesus through his entire life, all the way through his death and resurrection. Now he's on the Isle of Patmos where he's receiving this vision. And he sees the Lamb of God take the scroll from God's right hand. The lamb is worthy to judge, but he is also our advocate. He's the one that fights for us and speaks for us on our behalf, and he is also the atonement for our sins. Here's what I'm getting at. When we, when we think about judgment, it's not usually something, well, it's actually not usually something we like to think about, right? We think about it usually at least I do, I think about it in context to myself. Because I know the stuff that I've done. I know the injustice I've done to myself, to God, to other people. I am well aware, (laughs) hyper aware, in some cases, of the injustice that I have done while I've been here on earth. I don't need anybody to tell me, I know. And there's still some stuff that I've done that I probably missed that I'm going to be informed of at some point. I know... And we all know in our heart of hearts that we're guilty of something. Whether we're guilty of of hurting someone else, we're guilty of lying or or stealing or or adultery or whatever you want to say. We all kind of recognize it's the human condition, it's sinful. We all recognize there's some kind of guilt, something that we're responsible for. We also recognize internally that because we have this concept of justice, right, that didn't just come out of nowhere. You could dig really deep down. I won't do this today. Um, but when you, you, know, you dig into morality and morals and stuff like that, and what the, the very end of the philosophical road of morality really is that morality isn't relative. I know it's fun to say that and it's really popular right now. I'm sorry it's not. Because if it's relative, then it's not morality. Really, it's a self-defeating argument. Anyway, I could get on my philosophical high horse for a while on that one. Uh, 
Anyway, there's something beyond us where morality comes from. And we all sort of have this sense in us that this is true. When we think about judgment, Christians, when we think about it, like I said before, it's usually not the thing that we want to talk about with our unsaved friends, right? Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. He's going to judge you. Usually not the first thing out of our mouths, right? We focus on his love and his grace because, because we are aware of the fact that we need it. Because we understand that at one point we were also guilty and under judgment. And there's a point in your life where you have the opportunity, where all of us here today, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to do this yet, and you will at the end of our service, where we had the opportunity to say, okay, I understand, I'm sinful, I'm guilty, I've broken God's laws. And because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, I'm going to ask him to take that payment and apply it to my account so that I no longer am under judgment but can have eternal life and experience life with Christ while I'm here on earth. You hit that point and you can say yes to Jesus or you can say no to Jesus. And we all get that. But a lot of times when we talk about the gospel, when we tell our friends about Jesus, and I'm not saying you should lead with the judgment part. Maybe some cases, yes. Not saying it's general rule, you should always do it. However, a gospel with no mention of judgment really is no gospel at all, because then what is he saving you from? Right? He's just a guy that died a terrible death so he could feel good and have tinglys on our spine on a Sunday morning. Is that it? So we could have a a nice little club, you know, where we get together here at Perry Hall High School and, and get to know each other and stuff. You can do that stuff outside of church, right? So we avoid the judgment part because it makes us uncomfortable, right? But here's the deal. Our view of Jesus as a judge. Our understanding of him as a judge is really important. That's why we've traced all the way back to the book of John today. Jesus is not, yes, he is a judge, but he's not a vengeful judge, just emotionally enacting destruction on earth because of the injustice he suffered. He's not an indifferent judge who avoids understanding the struggles of those he judges. He's not a God who created all these laws and then created human beings to be flawed and then he just sits up there and watches us stumble all over ourselves as we try to work through the life he gave to us. He's a just judge and being just, he will punish injustice. At the same time, his love for us is so great that he allowed himself to suffer more than any human has ever suffered in order to become the means by which we might escape judgment. We get worried when we get to Revelation and we see the judgment because we don't like it because it's unpalatable because it doesn't fit with our view of who God is, but it does because he is just, but he is also equally at the same time and in greater measure than we can ever understand loving. And he made a way. He didn't just break the rules. There have been some preachers out there, I won't mention names because some of you probably like them, uh, 
who have said in the last couple years that God broke the rules by sending Jesus Christ. That he broke the rules. He was the judge and he was just, but he loved us so much that he broke the rules. If the judge is supposed to be just and he breaks the rules, is he just anymore? Right? That would make God guilty of something. Maybe we can't hold him accountable for it, but it means he's not perfect. It means he's guilty. This incredible thing is that God didn't just break the rules. He actually made a way within the system for us to, exp- for us to escape judgment. And that was through his son Jesus, who is also our judge and our advocate and the atonement for our sins. As the worship team comes back up, I'm getting us out of here early today. <laughs> Remember two steps to opening the scroll, right? We hit step two. That was finding somebody worthy of it. But what was the first step? I've got a pretty good guess as to at least one of, there are probably more, well, there are more, um, conditions that God placed before the scroll is open, but I, I'll give you one that I'm pretty sure is in there. Is Jesus Christ dying on the cross? God has every right to judge us without offering an escape from judgment. He has every right, because he wrote the law and we broke it. It's pretty cut and dry. But like I said, because of his great love, he provided a means by which we might escape judgment, and he withheld his judgment until Jesus came. But he's still, he's still withholding it, because as we learned back in May, there's a reason Jesus Christ hasn't come back yet. Second Peter chapter 3 the reason that Jesus hasn't returned yet, the reason that maybe Jesus hasn't grabbed this scroll and ripped it open and stuff is happening here on earth is because God in his infinite mercy is holding off his judgment so that as many people on earth can be saved as possible. Across all these centuries, the trillions of people who have existed on earth, God is, with, is holding off his judgment for the moment. He's not stopping it or canceling it. But in his great mercy, he is waiting so that we all have the opportunity to say yes or no to our judge, our advocate, and our atonement. Here's how we'll close today. Um, worship team, you guys can start playing. Those of us today who are here who are Christians, like I said, we at one point understood that we were guilty of our sin and we asked Jesus who paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross to forgive us, right? To apply that payment to our account. And we all have we have friends, we have loved ones, co-workers, neighbors, family who have not made the decision to say yes to Jesus. Here's a question for you today. Have they had the opportunity? In a universal sense, maybe yes. But my question to you is, have you shared with them about Jesus? Jesus.
they're under judgment just as we once were. Only we are aware of the means by which we can escape judgment. We have the solution, right? My challenge for all of us who know Christ in this room today is this. If we understand how just and how loving Jesus is, is that spurring us to tell more people about him? What are you doing with your friends and loved ones? Do you kind of avoid the conversation because you don't want to risk the relationship? I've done that. I still do that sometimes. Or are you so moved and so convicted and so blessed by Jesus' work in your life that you're willing to maybe risk a little relational uncomfortability so that you can tell them how to escape judgment. And remember, it's not just about escaping judgment and getting off the hook. This is about abundant life. That's why Jesus came. John 14, 14, right? I came that you would have abundant life. It's about life here on earth, about having peace and hope and love in the midst of ridiculous circumstances. It's also about eternal life with a God who loves us, who sent his son, the judge, to be our advocate in the atonement for our sins. Also, if you're here today and you would say, I am not a Christian, I've never made that decision to, to ask Jesus to forgive me. But you're here today and you're recognizing something inside of you is recognizing that, yes, I've made mistakes. Yes, I've broken God's laws. Maybe I've broken man's laws. I've broken the law. And I understand that I'm, I'm guilty before a just God. But I've heard about this man named Jesus who died a death that I deserve to die so that I could be saved, so that I could be spared, and so I could have an incredible life with him now and after I die in eternity. If that's you this morning and you're recognizing that, I want to be the guy this morning that gives you the opportunity to say yes or no. I can't make the decision for you. I can't save you. None of us here can save you but Jesus. So I want to give you the opportunity to say yes or no to Jesus today. I hope that you say yes. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes real quick. I just want to lead you in a short prayer. If that's you today and you want to say yes to Jesus Christ, I want to lead you in a prayer. It's real short. You can just repeat it. You can repeat it in your head if you want, in your own words. It's just a structure, really, but you can repeat this after me in your heart. Dear Jesus, I recognize today that I'm sinful, that I've broken your laws. But I've also heard that you died a death I deserve to die so I could be saved. Would you take the payment from your death on the cross and apply it to my account today? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you restore 
the broken connection between me and God. Would you save me? I don't want to continue living a sinful life. So I also ask you to lead me, to be my Lord. Teach me your commands and help me to obey them. In your name I pray. Amen.